The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. It's good to see you. A bunch of y'all probably had homecoming last night. Raise your hand if you went to homecoming last night. Okay, I thought it was mostly, mostly homecoming last night for y'all. So y'all are wide awake, aren't you? Yeah, looking forward to an hour sitting still in a nice, warm, cozy chair. But uh, it's good to see everybody this morning. We continue our study of 1 Corinthians. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. And as you do that, I want to ask you a question. The song said, Our sins they are many, but His mercy is more. That's a beautiful uh, concept that our sins are many, his mercy is more. I wonder uh, if you think that that's that general attitude of the people. Let's just start with outside the church. Outside the church, the general operating system, do people live with that attitude that my sins are many, but his mercy is more? Would you think that's the general attitude outside the, the walls of the church? No? Okay, generally agree, no. All right. Scared to ask. What about inside the walls of the church? Is that the general attitude inside the walls of the church? We hope so. We hope so. Well, that's, that's right. That's the idea. That should be our attitude. And the way we know if that's our heart attitude, that we see our own sin more than we see others' sin, and that we know that his mercy is more than our sins, therefore we should be merciful people. The 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 true test or the true evidence as to whether that's our heart attitude or not is in our actions and how we respond and treat one another, right? So let's let's review it, go back outside the walls of church. So in our culture today, what is the general response to what does someone do when they have a grievance against someone else? Sue them. That's it. Man, both services, it was like the first answer. Absolutely. A lawsuit. No offense, attorneys. We've got a lot of attorneys, I'm sure, in, in, our, in our church, or I don't know if we do or not. But that's definitely the norm in culture, that when you have a grievance, you sue. What about the church? You think that's the same attitude in the church? Not supposed to be. And that's what Paul is going to say today, that that should not be the attitude that we see in the church. I did a little research and learned uh, Paul Rubin in the New York Times said that the United States is already the most litigious society in the world. We spend about 2.2% of our gross domestic product, roughly $310 billion a year, or about $1,000 for every single person in our country on tort litigation. And this is much higher than any other country. So lawsuits is how our society handles grievances. And I would say that in the city of Corinth that Paul limped into, if you remember as we've studied, Paul says, I entered into Corinth with much fear and trembling. I was weak. I was, I was nothing impressive. All I did was go into Corinth. And we said it's not very different from the descriptions of Corinth back then to the dark underbelly of New Orleans, that that's really the scene that he limps into and just says, the only thing I did was preach Christ and him crucified and you got saved. God worked powerfully through the proclamation of the gospel. He transformed you. He made you born again, a new creature in Christ. The old things have passed away. All things have come new. You're filled with the spirit of God. You are radically different now. And so when you... All new people filled with the Spirit of God covenant together to become a church. This people should be radically different than outside the church. 
That's what Paul's been saying. Last week he said, look, outside the church, they tolerate sexual immorality. Inside the church, no, we don't do that. We deal with it because that will corrupt, that will spread, and we can't allow that because that destroys the community that is supposed to be an alternative to the world. We are supposed to be providing by the way we live together. This is not something that magically happens in the air. It happens through us and the way we think and behave and treat one another, that we are supposed to be providing to the community at large an alternative to say this is a taste, it's not perfect, but this should be a taste of what it's going to be like to live eternally in God's glorious kingdom. And so we have the goal of providing a a taste of what that's going to be like. And that means that how we live should be radically different. The gospel changes everything. Seeing every part of life through the gospel lens. When Paul looks at the church at Corinth, he's teaching them, hey, the way you're thinking about things has to be transformed as you become uh, new in Christ. That the community of faith will be radically different and beautiful and glorious and light as opposed to darkness. Hope as opposed to despair. Love as opposed to hatred. Reconciliation as opposed to vengeance. It's going to be different if this community is filled with the Spirit of God. And so last week, Jared claimed in the service, because I listened, that I assigned him a very challenging text just to be mean. I did not choose when LSU was playing Florida. All right? I got the opportunity to go to that game. Happened to be on a difficult text for him. My bad. His, his bad. Sorry. But anyway, I didn't do that on purpose. A lot of these texts are very touchy subjects, very difficult subjects that we're going to be dealing with. Today, last week it was telling the church, you can't allow sin to just, to just fester in the church. You've got to deal with it. And that's, that's a touchy subject. How do you do that with much love, seeking restoration? Today, he says, how do you handle grievances in the church? How do you handle it when someone in the church commits a sin against you? And he's saying, you cannot do exactly what the people in Corinth did. Barclay says this about what it was like in Corinth. He says, the Greeks had a love for litigation. He said, the Greeks were naturally and characteristically a litigious people. The law courts were, in fact one of their chief amusements and entertainments. In a Greek city, every man more or less was a lawyer and spent a very great part of his time either deciding or listening to cases. The Greeks were in fact famous or notorious for their love of going to the law. When a person in Athens turned 30, they were eligible to be on the jury. And the jury of a small trial had hundreds of people on the jury. Not a small jury, hundreds of people. And on a large case, thousands of people served on the jury. And then every male, when he turned 60, his entire year as a 60-year-old was to serve as a public arbiter of these cases. So it was a massive part of the community. Imagine when someone in your, in your circle of influence takes, uh, is on a jury, you want to know, well, what was the case? What happened? What happened? What did you say? What did you all decide? It's just the talk of the, of the town. Well, that was what it was like in Corinth. And so the whole town was built around suing each other over anything, over trivial matters, over everything. That was just just sue happy. Lawyer up. Take them to court, bro. It's not a whole lot different than our society. 
but I think it was much worse. And Paul says, not inside the church. Paul says the church can't live the same way as society, that when you come to Christ, everything's different. He's going to give us three gospel truths that should change the way we handle grievances in our life. He's going to say who you are in Christ changes everything. Lord, help us this morning as we, as we look at the text. Would you help us to, to think about these truths, that you would transform our minds and our hearts, that we would understand that who we are in Christ changes everything, and that we as a church would handle grievances in a much better way that glorifies you in this place. And it's in Christ that we pray. Amen. All right, the three characteristics of who we are in Christ. First of all, we are judges in Christ. Being in Christ makes you a judge. That's a strange concept. But look what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 and following. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Basically, Paul is saying, how dare you? How dare you, church, take you who are called saints, notice he says that, but instead of going out to the unrighteous, you who are called saints are taking your cases, instead of taking it to the saints of God, you're taking it outside to the unrighteous and letting them handle the matters. He says, how dare you go do this as saints? When you become a, a person united with Christ, you're declared a saint. God gives you credit for Jesus' righteousness. A saint is someone who is declared holy and righteous and set apart, made different, set apart for the purposes of God. And so he is saying, how dare you? In fact, there's really not a whole lot of content in this passage. It's just a lot of emotion where he says in this section, how dare you? In the next section, he says, shame on you. Those are his two main points. How dare you and shame on you. This is basically Paul giving us a big shame slap. So you're welcome. Today, I'm glad you're here as a guest, but you have come into a place where Paul is shame slapping all of us and saying, how dare you act this way? Do you not know that if you're in Christ, you should act differently? And so today he says, how dare you act like that? You are judges in Christ. Look at verse two. Do you not know that the saints... Those are all of us who are in Christ. The saints will judge the world. The saints will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know? That's what he keeps saying. Do you not know that you're a saint in Christ? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that you will also judge angels? That's what he says. Do you not know in verse 3 that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? You see how he turns everything upside down? And he says the matters of the church have great standing. How could you take matters outside of the church instead of dealing with them among the saints, among people who have the spirit of God, who have the word of God, who have been declared righteous, they are saints, and in fact, when Christ returns, they will judge the world. These people sitting with you, if they are in Christ, 
will judge the worlds. And not only will they judge the world, but they will judge angels. That's what the Bible says. If we read a couple of passages, Daniel 7, 13, it's talking about a day when Christ will come again and he'll establish his kingdom on earth and all dominion is given to him. It says, I saw, Daniel saw in a vision, I saw in the night visions and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. This is Jesus. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him, Jesus was given all dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And then you read in Revelation 3:21 speaking about the same kingdom that the believers, the one who conquer, he says, "I will grant him to sit with me on my throne." As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. These are strange concepts that in Christ, we don't really understand fully what all this is. But what I, what I do see is that those who are in Christ, when Christ is exalted as king over his kingdom, his children who are sons and daughters are princes and princesses, Right? We are prince and princesses, and we reign as co-kings, co-regents with King Jesus over all of his world. And he says, and that's not enough. He says, you're going to rule the angels. In 2 Peter 2, 4, and it says the same thing in Jude, verse 6. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So there are angels, spiritual beings that have rebelled against God and are being held until the day of judgment. And what we're seeing here is that we will be there, those who are in Christ, sitting on the throne with King Jesus, judging the angels. Now, there's a whole lot about this that I can't fully explain, most of it. But I can tell you what it does cause me to do is to go, okay, if, if God has made us judges like that in Christ, then we're more than capable of handling our issues. And that's what Paul's doing. You're more than capable to handle the issues, your grievances inside the church. And that's why he says, you can handle, if you're the ultimate of the Supreme Court justices of the universe, you can handle these trivial cases. You see, what Paul's doing is putting it in perspective. That's why he keeps saying, do you not know? Do you not know six or seven times in this passage? Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know these things? This is just another reminder of why we must be a people saturated with the word of God. We must be gospel saturated, Bible saturated, because the way we think is not right most of the time. The way the culture behaves is not right most of the time. God says, do you not know that I have made you a saint? Do you not know that I have set you apart for a different lifestyle? Do you not know that I have made you judge of the world and judges of the angels then you should not do the same thing you see happening in culture. You should not rush off to court for any little thing that goes on in the church. And so we got to always be renewing our mind and transforming our mind and having our perspective radically altered. Paul's lifting your eyes off of the grievances that you have and saying, wait a minute, 
Don't rush to court with them. Think about it differently. Do you not know that you are going to be a judge? Surely then you can handle these trivial cases, these matters only pertaining to this life. Next he says, do you not know that you are family in Christ? Again, he's trying to change our perspective saying, this is to your shame. Shame on you, verse 5 says. This is to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Notice he says brothers. So now he uses this familiar, familial language. He's like, look, you're going to tell me that you're going to judge angels, but there's no one among you that's wise enough to handle these cases? Surely there is. And then he says, these cases between you brothers. But brother goes to law against brother, and that is done before unbelievers. And so he's like a parent, not that I ever had my parents do this to me, but you can imagine a parent grabbing their hold of their kids out of the grocery store and sternly walking to the car and smiling and getting them in the car and says, shame on you. Why would you behave like that in public? You, you are brothers. How could you do this to your brother? You're, you're embarrassing the family here. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you can't act like this. This is not how brothers should treat brothers. This is not how sisters should treat sisters. We should be careful. One implication is that we should be more concerned about the family than we are about ourselves and getting what we think we deserve. That's what Paul is saying here is you bring shame to the name of Christ... When you are so concerned about yourself that you take a brother outside the church and take him to court and sue him. He said, we shouldn't, we shouldn't operate like that. Your family, this is your brother, this is your sister, God is your father. And we need to think that way. How in the world could you treat your own family like this? I mean, we don't do that. We get this concept on Thanksgiving. We put up with all kinds of family people we don't like because they're our family. Right? You sit at the dinner table and you bend over backwards and you put on a happy face. Why? You're not doing that for everybody else you don't like. You're doing it because they're your family. And you owe them a greater debt of love. And that's what Paul is saying in the church. I know there's people that rub you wrong. I know that people that you have grievances against. But he says, listen, your family, suck it up. We're going to get together and we're going to have Thanksgiving. Because that's what family do, right? That's what Paul's saying. So verse 7 and 8, he gives us a couple of ways, I've already alluded to some of them, but a couple of ways that being family changes us. Number one, it means that we should be more concerned about family and the name of family than we are about ourselves. To put it another way, we should be more concerned about the glory of God in this place than we are about getting what we think we deserve. That's a very immature attitude of a family member to be so whiny and so concerned about themselves that they ruin Thanksgiving for everybody, Right? He says, listen, you need to be more concerned about the glory of God and about providing a, a, a wonderful place of love for others to come in and to see God in his grace than you, are worried about, than you are about worrying about getting what you think you deserve. Why not rather be defrauded? That's what he says. Why not rather be defrauded? 
to have lawsuits, verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You've already lost. So what if you have a legitimate case against a brother in Christ, you take him to court, and you win? Well, guess what? You've already lost because you've defamed the name of Christ. And so he says, you need to be more concerned with them. Why not just rather suffer wrong? That's almost the bigger crime in our society, isn't it? To suffer wrong when you could get your due is almost the greater sin in our culture. What? Dude, you have a case. Lawyer up and take them to court and you can get rich. Paul says, why, why not rather suffer wrong? Why do you think that winning this case and maybe even winning money or, or proving you're right, why do you think that's more valuable than, than preserving the glory of God in this place? He's changing our perspective. Second, he says also that family, like I've already said, means treating, owing each other a greater debt of love. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So the idea is, it's bad enough to wrong to defraud someone, anyone, but even to defraud your own family. Imagine a family member suing his own family. He's saying that. Imagine you're suing each other. That's ridiculous. And you're even def- suing in a way that defrauds your own family. He says, you're family in the church. You can't do this. Everything's different. Now, I want to take a moment to, to, to praise God for what I've seen in Norris Ferry. I've seen Norris Ferry do this well. There have been situations where there have been potential massive disputes. Uh, they were brought to our attention. I would say we barely dealt with it the best we could because we need to get better at learning how to kind of handle issues when on top of the business of life. But in that case, people could have quickly rushed to court and sued a brother, and they didn't do it. And I would say that, that it was to the glory of God, to the unity of this church, to protect the church, and to say, I think many people in our church said, right or wrong, I don't, I'm not drawing conclusions, but I can tell you what they said was, I'm willing to be defrauded rather than to take this person to court. And that's glorious. That's the work of God. That's the difference that Christ makes in a person's life. So he says, you are judges in Christ. Do you not know that? Well, then you, you can't be treating people like this. You can't be taking your brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to judges outside. You're going to be judges. Secondly, he says, you're family in Christ. You can't sue your brothers like this. This is no way to treat your family. Again, he's basically saying, how dare you? Shame on you. But then in verse 9, he says, you are righteous in Christ. And here, the tone, he kind of seems to step back in verse 9 and, and look back at all the stuff he sees going on in the church and kind of addresses all of it to say, look, do you not know, as he keeps doing, do you not know your judges? Do you not know your brothers? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I think what he's doing here is he's backing up and he's going, I'm telling people in the church, don't sue your brother when you have an agreement against them. And now he's going, now to those of you who are defrauding your brothers, who they actually have a right to sue you, let me tell you something. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
just because you're in this church and people are tolerating you with mercy and grace, don't be deceived. There's a price to pay and it's coming. And don't think that you're good because you're in the church. And then he goes on this litany of all the sin he's seeing in the church. He says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now stop there and pause. What did you just do in your heart when you heard that list? You chose one or two of those as worse than the others, didn't you? You're like, "Mm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, that's right. And the one that's yours, you minimize. But the one that's someone else's, you magnify and say, yeah. Well, what Paul's doing is putting them all on a list on the same level. And his point is not one over the other. His point is the one who practices any of these or all of these is the one who is deceiving himself and will not inherit the kingdom of God, though he may think he will. So the issue is not for us to pick one of those sins and say, yeah, that person is going to hell. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul's saying is the one who embraces a sinful lifestyle, chooses the side of sin instead of God's side, He says they're deceiving themselves if they think that is behavior consistent with someone who's going to heaven and is going to inherit the kingdom of God. And so whether a person is born with the desires for sexual immorality or born with the desires to idolize things or people or born with the desires of sex outside or or lust for outside of marriage and adulterer or for relationships with the same sex or with desires to covet and steal and, and, and to be greedy or to abuse someone who's born with tendencies to abuse alcohol or someone who's born with the tendencies to, to party too much and to be a reviler or reveler or, or someone who is, who is sketchy in their character and they're swindlers. He's saying, listen, it doesn't matter if you are born with those desires. The question is, are you fighting the sin or are you embracing it? And that's for all sin. That's for all temptation. That's for all tendencies. Okay? So it doesn't matter if you, I'm tend towards that. So what? The question is, what are you doing with it? Are you fighting it? Or are you embracing it? And that's what Paul's saying is those who practice these things, those who embrace these things and call them good, will find out the hard way. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Because that's not what the Spirit of God inside of us produces. The Spirit of God in you as a believer, united with Christ, says, I hate those tendencies that I see in me. And I'm going to fight them. I may not get it right all the time. I will stumble and I will fail. But I will fight it till the end because that's what the Spirit produces in me. Y'all follow me on that? So that's what he's saying is you have to understand. Do you not know that? And he's hammering people who would take advantage of others and on these other issues that we're going to see brought up in the text at later dates. 
Again, Paul addresses the issue by reminding them who they are in Christ. Verse 11, do you not know, he says, that such were some of you. You were living that way before Christ. You were the drunkard. You were the homosexual. You were the adulterer. You were the thief. You were greedy. You were the reviler until Christ changed you. And so remember that as you interact with one another in the church. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. This is who you are now. You're not like that anymore because you were washed. You, you don't call yourself, I am a drunkard. You say, I am a saint washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't say, I am a homosexual. No, I am a saint washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't say, I am an alcoholic, I am a drug addict, I am a porn addict. I am. No, that's not who you are in Christ. You are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am a saint and I struggle with that sin and I need God's mercy and help, right? That's who we are in Christ. But you were washed, you were sanctified, Sanctified, you were made holy, set apart by the blood of Jesus Christ. You were justified. You were treated, declared in court, not guilty. Because Jesus Christ took your punishment. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Do you not know this, Paul says. He says, do you not know this? Read your Bible. This is what God says about his children. So by reminding the church of their righteousness in Christ, of their position in Christ, it empowers them to live out the righteousness. You see, we're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace. And it's a gift of grace alone. But then the righteousness that God imputes to us and gives us credit for, then by the Spirit, it shows up in our life. If the root is in righteousness of Jesus, then the fruit will start to show forth righteousness. If there is no fruit of righteousness, then there should be no confidence that there is root in Jesus' righteousness. But you can't get that order confused. It's salvation by grace, but grace produces works, right? And so that's what Paul's saying is you are righteous in Christ unless you're deceiving yourself. But those who are washed by Christ, sanctified by Christ, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God, they are being transformed into righteousness and they will prove it out in their life. This is the power of the gospel. This is the only way we will be able to live this way. It's not going to be, as I said before, just white knuckled, bear it out, and just grit it in your teeth, and I'm just going to be different. It's going to be as we transform by the gospel, as we know what God says about us, as we believe what God says about who we are and what his plans are for us, and as we do spiritual battle in the community of Christ, and we encourage each other, we pray for each other, we remind each other the truth, we hold each other accountable. As we do this, the righteousness of Christ will become more abundant and more clear and more glorious. And then and only then we'll be able to say, I'd rather be grieved and suffer you defrauding me than to rush off and sue you to get what I think I deserve. 
But you got to know what you already have in Christ to do that. Paul, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 20, if someone sues you and take, to take your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Whew. That's hard to do, isn't it? It doesn't say give them your cloak as well, if this or that. He says that should be the attitude we have toward each other. So I know you hadn't heard anything I said because you got one question. So can I sue ever, Right? <laughs> That's your question. You go, yeah, but, that's all good, but what about this? And I would say that there are certainly some things in, the, in, the court, in our culture that you have to have settled property disputes, who actually owns it, that the law has to have you settle it to recognize things. So I don't think we can say there are some communities of faith that have said you can never go to the courts for anything. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is starting with this idea of addressing the problem of suing each other over anything and everything because they don't understand the difference that should be in the church. But what I would say is he's laying down a principle. And the principle is you live by this. The principle is love. The principle is faith. The principle is grace. The principle is mercy. The principle is not vengeance and my rights. If we live by that principle, I think that it has a couple implications. The number one implication is, I think, for the most part, that the church is doing really well. I think there's a lesson for the elders in this, that we have to do a better job of proactively setting up a a system of, of arbitrage, if you will, because we're doing our jobs, we're doing our normal jobs, and to stop and address an issue of conflict, it is very demanding, very complicated, and very time consuming, and, and we've got to be prepared for you to say to us, hey, I've got this grievance, and I need the church's help working through this in a way that glorifies God. But in your own heart, you have to say, am I willing to say, it's better for me to grieve than to to get even or get right? Father God, I pray that you'll produce that in our hearts, because that's definitely not something of the flesh. It's only of the spirit. I pray that, that we as a church will be so filled with Your attitude, which was, my sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. May we be able to sing that to one another. May we extend the mercy that you've extended to us. May we extend the forgiveness that you have extended to us. May we be more concerned about your family name, your glory, than we are about getting what we think we deserve. Lord, help us as a church be different, be more loving, more forgiving, more gracious than our culture so that we can give our culture, our community, a taste of what it's like to be a child of God and to live in your kingdom. So Lord, as we sing this song, would you just convict us where we need to repent? Would you free us from the root of bitterness and anger and resentment in our heart? Would you help us to have this mind that was in you, have it in us? And we pray that you'll do this by the power of your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.